0: And um, what we're actually going to do today is we're going to begin a series through um, the very first letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. The first letter. Does anybody have a guess? What's the first letter? Almost certainly the first letter that Paul wrote. Galatians. Okay, very good. So you can open your Bibles, if you have them, to the book of Galatians, or if you are more of a phone Bible person, you can take out your phone. And uh, we're going to be in the book of Galatians, and originally I had thought this might be like a three-part series, but to be honest, doing a three-part series on the book Book of Galatians is an exercise in futility, almost. And so what we're going to do is, um, I will be here this Sabbath and the next two Sabbaths, and uh, we'll do a chapter every day. So today we'll do chapter one, and then I'm actually going to go visit my parents, who I haven't seen for almost uh, two years, And then I've got a trip to California, so the next three sermons, and I'll work with Bob and we'll figure out this, will be probably on the screen here. Hopefully they can get it all worked out. If not, somebody else will have to come ready-made for a sermon there. So the plan will be a six-part series to the book of Galatians, three of which I'll be present here, and uh, two or three of them might be on the screen. So open your Bibles to the book of Galatians, and let me sort of... Let me just tell you what the temptation is here for me. Well, we'll start with prayer, and then I'll I'll talk to you a little bit about the temptation. Father in heaven, bless our time together now as we open this important, incredible, formative book. Father, formative in our own experience, formative in the development of Christian doctrine, formative in Paul's thinking and writing, Um, Father, formative even in church history. Uh, I pray, Father, that over the course of our time together, looking into this important book, that we would be drawn closer to you and that we would better understand who you are, and who we are in relationship to you. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say amen. Amen. So there are six chapters in the book of Galatians. Join me there if you would. So the temptation is is sort of like this. I could tell you in advance what the major themes are in this book and the historical context under which it was written, and very likely most of you would trust me on that. You'd say, yeah, probably the pastor is telling us the truth. He's done his research, he's done his work, and he's describing... But I think what I'm going to do is give you just just the, the smallest of details to just begin this journey. And then what I want to do is over the course of our time together, I just want the themes that Paul's going to be writing about to emerge from the text itself. One of the concerns that I have, and it was a concern that I had the last church that I pastored in Australia, and it's a concern that I have when I meet Christian people and Adventist people all over the world, and that is that they're beautiful people, they're wonderful people, they're amazing people, they're people that know the right answers, but very often, Not always, but very often they're not people that really know how to read the Bible for themselves. Um, They like to listen to sermons and they like to read books, but when it actually comes down to opening the text of Scripture and following the line of reasoning to follow the author's direction and then to fill in the gaps, my experience has been that there is a significant number of our people that that is not a a skill, really, that they've learned. And so that's what we're going to do. We're just going to literally go through these chapters and you will see unfolding before you uh, an incredible story. Now, just a couple more words of, of introduction. The first one is that anytime we're reading a letter, especially an ancient letter, we have to step outside of the context in which we live and with which we are familiar. And if you're not familiar with New Testament history or the culture and situation there, you're going to, it's going to be tricky for you. Fair enough. But... The other part that sort of complicates this, whenever, reading, whenever we're reading a letter, it's like we're listening into one half of a phone conversation, right? We are, we are listening to what Paul is saying, but we have to infer based on what Paul says, what's being said or what is being thought on the other side. And so you can just imagine we've all been in this situation. You're in a car with someone or you're in a small area with someone and they answer the phone and you hear them go, oh yeah, okay, really? Oh, okay. So you told her to get it. Okay. So she's going to pick it up at three. Okay. Well, do you think it'll still be hot by then? Okay. Oh, then you'll swing by. Okay. Gotcha. No, that will be great. So just make sure that you see, see what you're doing right now is you're trying to figure out what is that conversation? What's actually going on? And that's really what we're doing when we go to any of the New Testament letters, right? Paul is writing, to a group of people in a specific situation with a specific set of pastoral concerns, and if we lazily and irresponsibly just read into that ancient situation, that very specific situation, our own modern circumstance without first going through the hard work of asking, well, what did that mean to the original audience by the original author? We're going to make a gigantic mistake. And this enterprise of trying to understand what the original author meant to the original audience in the original context is what's called the enterprise of hermeneutics or interpretation. How do we know what was meant? And then and only then, after we have figured out what the original author meant to the original audience in the original context, can we then do the secondary part, which is make application to us very often what people do is they just read a passage and they instantly make application before saying well wait a minute what did it mean to the people who originally heard it and only then make the responsible application to individuals so that's what we're going to try and do here and we're going to go through galatians and one of the reasons we're starting with galatians is it was paul's first letter written probably it could have been written as early as AD 48 and probably not later than about AD 50. okay so this is very early after the Death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's sort of AD 31. So we're within less than two decades, which by historical standards is, is a blink. It's a flash. It's a moment, right? And so Paul here is going to be writing to the church in Galatia. Who wants to tell me where is Galatia? Does anybody know? It's cent- what we would call Central Turkey. Central Turkey, right, and there's an area there, Turkey, what we today call Turkey was divided up into a number of different areas, Phrygia, Syria, Galatia. Uh, Paul is writing here to Central Galatia, and we should just briefly say, and I think this will be the last thing that I'll say by way of introduction, Paul has already been to these churches. These are churches like Antioch and Cyprus and, or excuse me, um, Cyrene and Derby. He's been to these places already. He has left, and then now in the wake of Paul's visit, rumor has got to him, reports have got to him about things that have happened in these churches that he planted. Now, the churches to which Paul would be writing in the letter to the Galatians would have probably been smaller even than this church. Some of these churches could have numbered as few as a dozen or maybe two dozen people. Very small churches churches and so don't have in your mind that Paul is writing to something like you know the Franktown church or you know to pioneer memorial church where there are hundreds or perhaps thousands of people that are sitting in buildings with stained glass windows that's not what's happening these are very small groups of people almost certainly meeting either in the open air or in someone's home and after Paul has left these churches of central turkey people have come in behind Paul reports of those people that have come in behind Paul to undermine him And his ministry and his teaching have circulated back to Paul, and Paul now writes back into that situation. Okay, so this is pre-internet, pre-email, pre-texting, pre-phone. And so these letters could sometimes take weeks or even months to arrive. And Paul will write in Galatians with such an urgency and frankly with such a rawness that there will be no doubt in your mind that this is Paul at his most primitive, his most raw, and even frankly his most emotional. Right? Th- this is early Paul. This is th- Paul is not being careful here. He's not being political here. He's going to charge right in like the bull in the proverbial china shop and you'll have a feel for that immediately. Okay, I think that's all I'm going to say by way of preamble. So let's get into this. We're in Galatians chapter 1. And we'll pick it up in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, to all of the brethren and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. So most letters that were written in Paul's time consisted of basically three parts. They consisted of an introduction, a body, and then a closing greeting. And for the most part, all of Paul's leaders follow that same basic structure. So an introduction, and then the body of what you're going to say, and then you'll have a a series of closing greetings. And so Paul begins here by announcing who he is, and he says, Paul, an apostle. So let me ask you this question. What is an apostle? What does that word mean? Does anybody know? Okay. The word, actually, there's a, there's a great little way to remember what this word means. Take a look at the word, and what word is right kind of in the middle of that word if you take off the A and the L-E at the end? What's that word? The word is post. Now, we don't really say it like this in the United States, but in Australia, if you post something, what have you done? You've mailed it, or you've, what would be another word for that? You've sent it. So we say, oh, did you post the letter? Did you post the package? And so the word apostle literally means a sent one. Someone who has been sent. And an easy way to remember that is a postal right someone who has been sent and so Paul says that he's an Apostle but then he qualifies the fact that he's been sent in verse 1 and this actually gives us a little insight here into the circumstance and into the situation that Paul is writing again remember we're listening in to one half of a phone conversation and let me just ask you this question when Paul says if anybody gets this I'll be really pleased because it's not an easy question When Paul says, Paul, a sent one, and then there's this parenthetical statement, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, does anybody have uh, uh, just the slightest little suspicion of what one of the elements might be into which Paul is writing on the other end of the phone? He's he's actually giving you a little hint there. What's that, Reiner? They're not accepting him as... Okay, excellent. Great job. So, very good. One of the major features, especially of the first two chapters of the book of Galatians, is that we're going to find Paul speaking very autobiographically. In fact, atypically autobiographically. Um, Paul will always say a little something about his journeys or his circumstances or his situation, but what we're going to have basically in Galatians, all of chapter 1, which will be in today, all of chapter 2, which will be in next week, is Paul speaking autobiographically about his own experience. And the reason for that is exactly what Reiner and Alice have said, and that is that that Paul's apostleship, Paul's ministry, and by extension, Paul's legitimacy is being undermined by the people that have followed behind Paul. They're undermining him, the things that he taught, the things that he said, and even the legitimacy of his having been sent. And you get a little hint right there in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, but from God and Jesus." And then he says to and all the brothers that are with me to the churches that are in Galatia. Now verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you just to feel the incredible personal, emotional, as well as theological significance of the fact that the very first thing that Paul says to these increasingly wayward churches in Galatia is grace and peace. Grace and peace. The very first thing, when Paul sits down, pen in hand, very likely he had somebody else that was acting in in a a dictation um, uh, uh, employment for him. But when Paul sits down, and the very first thing that comes to his mind, the very first thing that he's going to say is grace and peace. Friends, God's posture toward you is a posture of grace and peace. God's Posture toward you is a posture of grace and peace. Turn to the person right next to you, even now, and say, God's posture toward you is a posture of grace and peace. Go ahead and say that right now. Let let the person next to you know. (laughs) Gene, God's posture toward you is a posture of grace and peace. Okay? And I want you just to feel that settling over you. By the way, if if time allowed and if we wanted to go even deeper here, we could make the observation that it's the grace of God that produces peace. Peace with God. And so there's even a sequence here. It's not just grace and peace. It's grace which produces peace. God's posture toward you, God's attitude toward you, God's orientation to you is an orientation and of grace. And when we receive that grace, it brings, what word am I going to say? It brings peace. So grace and peace to you from God the Father and from our Lord, our Master, Jesus Christ. Verse 4, we're still in the greeting, by the way. Who gave Himself. Who, what everyone? What did He give? He gave Himself. Now, I won't do this a lot, but occasionally I will make reference to other passages in Paul, and this is one of those occasions. This phrase, gave himself, is a very important phrase in Pauline thinking and in Pauline theology. He will say it, oh, at least six or seven times, that that the the essence of what God has done in Christ is he gave, what am I going to say? He gave himself. He gave himself. He gave himself. He gave himself. Right. Think of, uh, for example, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church, and, does anybody know this? And gave himself for her. Paul will say this again and again, and very often in some of the most significant passages in his writing. Um, look at just chapter 2, verse 20. I, I won't do this often, skipping ahead, but just, just take a look. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, which is arguably the best known, most quoted, and most memorized verse in all of Galatians. Right? This is where Paul says, I have been, you could probably quote this many of you, I have been crucified with Christ. What? He goes on to say, it is no longer I who live, but what? Christ lives in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And by the way, notice something there. When Paul says, who loved me and gave himself for me, love functions as the equivalent of gave himself. Right? The, the verse I just quoted for you a second ago, Ephesians 5.25. Listen to it again. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church, and what's the consequence of loving someone? Gave himself. So, so for Paul, this phrase, gave himself, Gave himself, gave himself, is a very succinct summary of the essence of what God has done in Christ. He gave himself, and further, for Paul, that's the equivalent of saying, what would be a one-word, one-syllable way of saying that? He loved us. To love is to give yourself, right? Paul later in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the so-called love chapter, will say love, one of the features of love, is that it does not seek its own. Well, what is it doing then? It's seeking the benefit and the blessing and the upbuilding of others. It's giving itself. Okay? So look back at verse 4. Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. So he says, Who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age. Ooh, there's some big theology there. According to the will of our God and Father. According to verse 4, why did God give himself in Christ? Answer from the text. Okay, what 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 what? To deliver, us out of this to deliver us out of this present world and he he gave himself for our sins. So already in embryonic form, even just in the greeting Paul's thinking was so linear, so sequential, and and so theologically robust that even in the greeting, he's already inserting these little ideas that that God gave himself for our sins to deliver. What would be a a synonym for deliver? To rescue, to free. So this has got Exodus language in it. Right? And and Paul will very often use the idea of slavery and bondage and freedom and liberty. And right here, just in the introduction, he's already said, He gave himself so that we could be free. We could be delivered. And now, verse five. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's just the greeting. Right? Just in the greeting, we have these great principles of grace and peace and love and God giving himself and deliverance. And uh, the the idea of God giving himself for our sins. Okay, now we get into the body proper of the letter. And again, I want to remind you that chapters 1 and 2 is going to be largely and atypically autobiographical. In other places, again, Paul will write about his own experience and his own journey, but but never to this extent. All of chapter 1 and 2 is basically Paul telling you the story of himself. And again, why is that? Well, we don't yet know for sure, but we did have that little hint back back there in verse 1. And what is it? The legitimacy of his ministry and of his message and of his apostleship is under scrutiny. So Paul is going to be a little, we would say in today's parlance, a little defensive. Paul is going to set forth his resume, but he's going to do it in a way that is going to be a little raw, a little rough, and frankly at times a little non-pastoral. Paul's going to say some things in here that if I said... I would probably get called in by the conference, and they'd say, "Hey, we heard you say this," and I'd say, "Well, Paul said it." He'd say, "Well, he's Paul; you're David. You don't get to say that." Okay, verse six. Paul says, "I marvel." That's that's a that's not a strong enough translation. By the way, I'm reading New King James here. What other versions do we have present? What do you got back there? King James. What do we have here? ESV. ESV. NIV. Does anybody have a word other than marvel there? I marvel. Okay, that's astonished. What version are you reading? NIV. Shocked. Shocked. Okay. It's even stronger than marvel. It's, I'm astonished. I'm shocked. I'm beside myself. I cannot believe what I'm hearing. Now, remember, put yourself again in in Paul's situation. He has just spent the better part of a year in these churches in central Turkey. He has poured his blood, his sweat, his tears, his teaching, his heart, his soul into these people. He has then left and concluded the first of his three missionary journeys. And now reports are coming back that his work has been undermined. His ministry is being questioned. His legitimacy is being questioned. And is Paul happy about this? No, 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 no. So when he writes, he doesn't say, "Hey, how you guys doing? How are things? How are how are the kids?" And I heard you guys had a great harvest festival. That's not what's going on. Paul cut straight to this. I cannot believe what I'm hearing. I'm astonished. I'm incredulous. I'm gobsmacked. I marvel that you are turning away so soon, so quickly. From Him who called you in the... Notice now, the second time already in the... What's our word? The grace of Christ to a different gospel. The word turning away there is even stronger. It's deserting. The word is deserting. You have abandoned. You have deserted the gospel. I cannot believe what I'm hearing. You have deserted the gospel that I spent the better part of a year pouring into you and that you have actually and then Paul does a purposeful play on words here, you have actually embraced a different gospel. Now, the word gospel here is the word euangelion in the Greek, and it just means good news or glad tidings. Right? It's the very language, and maybe I should just briefly say this. One of the interesting features of the writings of Paul, not just in Galatians, but especially when he gets into his later writings like Romans, Paul does something that was absolutely provocative, and what he does is he actually co ops the imperial language of the Roman propagandists and applies that language that was already in common parlance and circulation to Jesus. One of those words that Paul literally lifts away from Roman propagandists and applies to Jesus is the word euangelion. The good news! because in the days of paul the rome the, the emperor's birthday was good news the emperor's arrival at a certain town or a certain village or a certain place was good news and it would be heralded and so paul will take Words, a lot of important words, like even the word justice and and the word peace, the Paxa Romana. He will take these words and he literally lifts the vocabulary of the Roman propagandists that are being applied idolatrously to Caesar, and he will apply them to Jesus. And right here he does it. He says, you have turned to another set of good news, because in the days of Paul there were competing ideas of good news. Oh, the emperor has arrived. Good news. A, a, A governor or a procurator of a certain town has held a festival. Good news. And Paul says, when I came to your town, I gave you not a good news. I gave you the good news of Jesus Christ, of the God who gave himself. And now I'm astonished to hear that you have deserted that, you have abandoned that, and you have now replaced it with another... Good news. Okay, now look at verse 7. Which is in fact not another, but there are some who trouble you. Ah, there we go. We're listening into to one side of the phone conversation and already we're getting clues. Paul says there are some that trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Now the word pervert there, there's an even better word. And I want to know, any other translations? What do we have? Twist. Oh, twist? Okay, that's getting close. Not true. Not true? Changed? Distort. Distort? Okay, so the word twist is actually quite a good one because it communicates an actual physical bending. The word means a reversal, a turn, a change of course. Now just insert that there. Uh, Verse 7, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you who want to reverse the gospel of Christ. They want to twist it. They want to change it. They want to... Now, we don't yet know what this reversal is, what this twisting is, what this reversion is, but we can know that for Paul, this is not an addition, this is not an auxiliary idea. Oh, okay, so some other guys came in after me and added some stuff. Good to hear it. No, what Paul is saying here is that what I'm hearing... If what I'm hearing is true, what's been added to the good news, because they're obviously using the same language, they're using the same vernacular and vocabulary, what's been added is not an addition, it's not a positive thing, it actually changes the whole nature of the thing that I taught you and reverses it. Now again, we don't yet know what it is. We'll get there, but even at the outset, we're already like, whoa, the gospel has been twisted, the gospel has been reversed. In what sense and how so? Now we're in verse 8. Paul says but even if we that is to say me and my traveling companions Paul did not travel from place to place alone he would have traveled with you know at least half a dozen companions and sometimes more than a dozen companions Uh, he's already said that back in verse 2 right all the brothers who are with me so Paul says even if we me and my traveling party or even an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we preach to you and here's very strong very unapologetic very non-political language, let him be, what's the word? Let him be accursed. Let him be, the actual Greek word here is anathema. Let him be anathema. So just a question. At the outset here, is, is Paul fired up? What do you think? Is Paul a little fired up? Is he a little stirred up? Is he concerned? See, one of the great things about, about Paul is that his pastoral heart is always Right out on the table. We never have to guess how Paul is feeling, what he's thinking, you know, what his emotional state is. He just, he wears, as it were, we would say, his, his feelings on his shirt sleeve. And so for Paul to say, hey, this other version of the UN this other version of the glad tidings and the good news is actually not an addition. It's not a nuance. No, he says it's a total reversal and Even if our party showed up and said to you something differently than I originally told you, or an angel from heaven came, never mind these knuckleheads that have come in after me, let them all be, what's our word here? Accursed. Paul is not mincing words here. He's fired up, he's stirred up. And we're going to, as Galatians unfolds, begin to get a feel for why Paul is concerned, the nature of his concern, but I want you just to imagine right here a little thought experiment. We talked in our Sabbath school class about how literacy rates in the days of Jesus and the days of Paul would have been less than 5%. So, so you're, let's just imagine that you are this church that has just received this letter from Paul. Okay, And there's a small congregation, and maybe there are two people in your congregation that are literate, that can read the Greek language. And so you're sitting there as listeners. You're sitting there as hearers. And the word has come, Paul, a letter has come from Paul. The very Paul who, just a year before, had preached and taught and baptized and ministered. And you might think, oh, this is going to be maybe good news, or what's Paul going to say? There's a little bit of excitement, right? You know how it used to be when you'd get mail, right? We don't, those days are largely gone from us. But when you'd get an unexpected letter in the mail, does anybody remember these ancient times? You say, oh, look, a letter, and you couldn't wait to open it. Right? So just imagine now you're sitting down and you're one of those first century Galatian believers, and Paul's coming on like this. I can't believe what I'm hearing. How soon you have departed from the gospel that I taught you. And I've heard that people have come in after me and they're troubling you and they're twisting and perverting the gospel. In fact, if anybody preached something other to you than what I said in the beginning, I just could hope they would be anathema. Okay, what's your frame of mind right now? Are you, are what is it? What is it, Greg? Whoa. You're like, you're freaking out, right? Paul is speaking with an apostolic and divine authority here. He's not mincing words. He's not playing games. He is fired up. Now, again, yeah, we're going to get into the content of his concern. But at the outset, the tone that's been set by Paul is not an affable, pastoral, small talk. Hey, great to see you guys. All the, No, no, he dives right into it, and now we are in verse 9. He actually repeats himself here a little bit in verse 9. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other euangelion to you than that which we have received, let him be anathema. Now, there's two options here. Paul could either just be literally repeating the exact same thing again, or in the days before erasers, Paul could have said something again, and the scribe wrote it down, and he wrote it down as two things, and Paul said, well, just leave it in there, because I mean it twice. Right? You couldn't just erase it and start over. So he said, just leave it in there. Leave it in. Verse 10. For do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Okay, this is one of those great little passages that gives us an insight into what's happening on the other side of the conversation. Now let's see if you can put on your investigative hat here and see if if there's something in that verse, verse 10 there that gives you a little insight as to what is happening in Galatia. Anybody see anything there? He says, "Now do I seek to persuade men or God?" What do you think? What do you think Paul is saying this for? Why that? Okay, no guesses. That's all right. The suggestion is that Paul is a people pleaser. Now, I could tell you right now what that's about, but it would be, I think, unfair to you because I want you to come with me on this journey. But one of the accusations that's being raised against Paul and against the legitimacy of his ministry here is that he's actually compromising pleasing God so that he can please people and ingratiate himself to them. Now, does anybody have a guess And I won't tell you if you're, I'll tell you if you're right. Does anybody have a guess at what might be the nature of this accusation that Paul is compromising on pleasing God so that he can really ingratiate himself to people? Okay, you're exactly right. Yeah, yeah, specifically, what is it? Nice and loud. Circumcision. Circumcision. Paul is traveling in a largely non-Jewish area. He is speaking, in fact, some of the places that he's traveling in Central Galatia didn't even have synagogues. So he's just meeting people in the open air. And uh, we have instances of this in Acts chapter 13 and 14. This is the, the story that tells Paul's first missionary journey, Acts 13 and 14. And, of course... Paul is saying to these non-Jewish people who know nothing about Jewish history or Jewish customs or Jewish rites and rituals, one of the things that Paul is saying as a part of his gospel is that you do not need to be, what word am I going to say? Circumcised. Circumcised. Okay, so now fill in the blanks. If Paul is saying you don't need to be circumcised and the accusation is that you're just trying to please people but you're compromising on pleasing God, what are the people that have come in behind Paul, what are they saying? that you do Do you see how we did that now this is going to become clearer but I want you to feel the angst and the frustration that Paul feels when the charge against him is that he's a pleaser of people and Paul says are you kidding me I'm not here to please people I'm here to please God okay now we're in verse 11 but I make known to you brothers brothers and sisters this is a a gender-neutral term I make known to you brothers and sisters That the gospel which I preached, that was preached by me, is not according to man. There's another little hint on the other side of the phone conversation that what's being said here is that Paul has gotten his gospel from some non-divine source. There is an illegitimacy about his apostolic ministry. Verse 12, For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through, watch this, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's right at this point that we probably should note that in Paul's day, as in Jesus' day, this is kind of how pedagogy worked. Okay, there weren't formal colleges and universities, there were rabbinical schools, and this is how that worked you would go and study under a rabbi. You would then become a devotee or a disciple of that rabbi. So for example, John the Baptist. Remember there's the the conversation where they came and said, how come John's disciples fast, but your disciples don't? Remember these conversations? So you would go and you would place yourself under the tutelage of a rabbi, and then after you had studied and learned everything that that rabbi could teach you, you would then go out and teach others who would teach others, who would teach others. That's sort of how the educational system worked back then. And so what Paul says, and so this is how it works. If you had a particularly great teacher, an esteemed and valued rabbi, the closer you could get to him, so you could say, I'm a student of Greg's student. Right. So let's say Greg had Jabel under his tutelage, and Jabel stud- studied under Greg for 10 years, and I was a student of Jable's. Well, now I'm saying I'm a student of Greg's student. You see what I'm doing there? And then now if somebody became my student, they could say, Well, I'm a student of a person that was a student of Greg. And people were looking for these rabbinical connections to esteemed and important and influential rabbis. What Paul does here is incredible. What does he do there in verse 12? Yeah, he just goes straight to the source. He cuts out all the middlemen. He says, not only did I not go to, and he's going to say this in just a second, not only did I not go to the apostles in Jerusalem, I went straight to Jesus, or more precisely, Jesus came to me. So where is the source, according to Paul, of his gospel? Jesus himself. So that's cutting out all the middlemen and going straight to Messiah. Okay? Yeah, you were the middleman, but I just turned you into the Messiah. Verse 13. He says, Paul says, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. This is a reference to the pre-converted, pharisaical Saul of Tarsus that encountered the living Christ on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. Paul says, You've heard this story. I told you this story. Verse 14. I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Now again, this is Paul speaking autobiographically. Why would he be saying this? Why does Paul here make the point, listening in to one half of the phone conversation, why is Paul saying, oh, maybe you haven't heard or maybe you have heard. I was the strictest in my class. I was the most devout in my community. Why would Paul be saying that? Say again. Okay, that's a great point. Maybe he's making an allusion here to... Yeah, okay, that's very good. What were you saying, Alice? He's not a people pleaser. Okay, he's not a people pleaser. That's a great point. What he's basically doing here is he's putting out his academic and cultural credentials and saying, he actually does in other places in his epistles, and say, Oh, oh, you want to talk resumes? Well, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of... And I was a Pharisee. And I, according to the law, blameless... He's sort of just putting out his little academic resume there and and saying, forgive my language here. He's saying, do you want to have a peeing contest with these guys that are coming in under me, behind me? And he said, okay, you want to get into that kind of a resume comparison? Fine, let's do that. Right? So notice, Paul is saying that what I taught you was not out of ignorance. I know my traditions as well as anybody knows the ancestral traditions of Judaism. Verse 15. But... When it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through His... What word have we encountered now for the third time? Grace. Grace. Say it with me nice and loud if you would. What's our word? Grace. Grace. It pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb. By the way, that's got Jeremiah all over it. If you're familiar with the call of Jeremiah... It was from the mother's womb, even the call of John the Baptist, that God raises up certain people, Samson, one of the Old Testament judges, that early on, he says, God separated me for a specific mission. Verse 16, why did he call you? Well, by his grace, verse 16, to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the, what word? Gentiles, Gentiles, that is to say the non-Jewish peoples. Now notice what Paul says here. When God appeared to me, when God revealed his plan to me, To preach the gospel among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Okay, what is Paul saying there? After Jesus appeared to me, I didn't go check in with other people to make sure that what I was saying and doing and thinking was okay with them. Paul says, why did I need to go to some secondary or tertiary source? I got my gospel straight from, what am I going to say? Jesus himself. So, obviously, listening into the other half of the phone conversation, one of the things that's being said here from the people that have come in behind Paul that are undermining him and his message and his ministry is that Paul had bad teachers. Yet Paul means well. And by the way, you do get the sense that there was at least at some level an affirmation of Paul's sincerity and his he did, you know, he did his best. He's a quirky guy, that Paul. You can just see. But he had, he had less than optimal teachers and he... And Paul says, are you kidding me? After Jesus spoke to me and revealed to me that his primary mission for me was to take the gospel to the Gentiles, let me tell you what I didn't do. I didn't go talk to a bunch of people about their opinion of what God had already revealed to me. There's a great pastoral takeaway here. If God reveals something to us, our first and foremost responsibility and accountability is to God, not to what other people think about what God has called us to do. Amen? Amen. If God reveals a responsibility, an obligation, a duty to you, don't go checking in with people around you to see how they feel about what God has convicted your heart of. You be true to God, and if everybody else wants to call you a people pleaser or a crazy person or a whatever, fine. Years ago, I preached a sermon called Because of Those Who Sat. And in that, I was describing the... The orientation that we can have to God alone, and I made up a word as I sometimes do, and the word that I made up was a was a was a, um, a combining or a contraction of the word God and audience, and the word is Godience. When we live for God alone, we live for an audience of one, the Godience. We, we care. I'm not out to please people. Now listen, if I can please people along the way and be a blessing, fine. But I'm living to be faithful to God, the Godians. Okay? So he says there, uh, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. In verse 16, verse 17, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Now this is fascinating. But I went to Arabia, and then I returned again to Damascus. Okay? So, he says, I didn't go to Jerusalem. I didn't go to those that were apparent authority figures in the early church. He actually says he did a very unusual thing. He went to where? According to Paul's own autobiography, where did he go? He says he went to Arabia. Now, it doesn't actually take place in this chapter, I don't believe. No, it takes place right at the very first part of the next chapter. So just look at two one briefly. Then after how many years? 14. years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and I also took Titus with me. If you just read the book of Acts and you didn't know what Paul just said right here in Galatians, you just read the book of Acts through, here's what you would encounter. In Acts chapter, let's just go through this very briefly, in Acts chapter 8 you would have the story of the Ethiopian eunuch being baptized by Philip. This is an anticipation that the gospel is about ready to go to non-Jewish peoples. In Acts chapter 9 you would have the conversion of Saul. So far so good? In Acts chapter 10, you would have the sheet that comes down, and, and Peter sees all of these creatures walking through the sheet, and God says to Peter, what? Rise, Peter, kill and eat. To which Peter says, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And then later, in Acts chapter 11, it dawns on Peter, oh, God wasn't telling me that it's okay to eat camel burgers and iguana sandwiches. What he's saying is, people are no longer to be regarded as icky or unclean. Are you with me so far? Then you come to Acts chapter 12, which is the death of Herod. And then you come to Acts chapter 13, which is Paul's first missionary journey to Galatia. Now, let me just go through that again quickly, and I'll show you why I'm doing that. So, 8 is the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch. 9, the conversion of Saul. 10, the sheet that comes down that announces that the gospel is going to the Gentiles. 11, uh, don't call any man unclean. Uh, Paul reali- or Paul, uh, Peter realizes it's about men. 12 is the death of Herod. 13 is what? 13 is Paul's missionary journey. Now check this out. If you just read that through, you would think, oh, that's probably like six months? Maybe it's a year? Do you know how much time is in there? 14 years. There's 14 years in there. Well, how do we know there's 14 years? Because Paul just told us. From the time that he was converted before he went back to before he went to Jerusalem for the longest trip, he's gonna tell us it was 14 years. If you just read Luke's book of Acts you would never see 14 years in in Luke's sequence. It reads like it's maybe a year at the most. 14 years in there, and where does Paul go during those 14 years? Arabia. What's in Arabia? The desert. Why might Paul, okay, let's just think about this through. I, I know you guys can give me the right answer here. Okay, what just happened to Paul on the road to Damascus? Paul, Paul's whole world was just turned instantly upside down when Jesus appeared to him and said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Paul's entire world, his world of Judaism, his world of Phariseeism, his sense of who he was, his sense of his people, everything was instantaneously turned upside down. Are, we, is that, are you comfortable with that? Like just imagine everything, especially for those of you that are generational Adventists. Right? you were been raised in this and your parents were raised in this and maybe even your parents' parents were raised in this. Adventism is just like a part of your DNA. Well, just imagine. Just imagine if you were traveling somewhere and a vision appeared to you and it was like the Pope. And you're like, Whoa this I was not expecting to see you know a glorified Pope on this trip that I was taking to Vermont and you are blinded by the by the Pope and you fall down he say oh who, who are you and he says hey hey wh- why are you Reiner why persecutest thou me who are you Lord I'm the Pope you'd be like what the Pope the Antichrist right and and, and you came under conviction You're, what would happen to your Adventism and I was wrong about everything, I guess. I guess I was wrong about every single thing that you can be wrong about. That's what happened to Paul. That, that fictitious scenario in which you suddenly realize Roman Catholicism is the truth and I've been deceived is exactly the same kind of tectonic revelation that Paul experienced on the road to Damascus. Everything that he thought was right, everything that he thought was sound, everything that he thought was, was instantly turned upside down. But Paul fancied himself very aware of Judaism. He just told us. In his class, he was as strict as could be. He was as knowledgeable as could be. So now I'm going to ask it again. Why did Paul go to Arabia? Yes, but why Arabia? Where was the... you're, You're killing me here. You're killing me here. Where was the Jewish nation formalized? at Mount Sinai. The law was given at Sinai in Arabia. Paul literally says, and by the way, you have to remember, this is at a day and age. This is at a time. Paul was atypical. Paul was anomalous. Uh, uh, anomalous. Most people, if they were born in a town, they would live, marry, reproduce, and die within a 20-mile radius of where they were born. You didn't travel. I mean, you, know, you might not even speak the language of the people on the other side of that mountain or that valley or that river. You stayed within your own people. You had your own regional deities, which is why what Paul was doing, traveling ag- across the greater Mediterranean world, now you begin to see, oh, that's why the gift of tongues was so important. Paul clearly had what we call wonderlust. Wanderlust. He was happy to travel. He was happy to go here, there, and everywhere. And so Paul, after his whole world is turned upside down, he says, ah, i got to figure this out. I guess I've been wrong about absolutely everything. I need to go back to the text. I need to go back to our own text, to the law, to the prophets. And where's, there's no better place to do that then to go back to the very place where the whole nation of Judaism, the whole nation of the the Israelites, and, and the law itself, Torah, was given, then in Arabia. So Paul goes to Arabia, where he learns from Jesus himself. Incredible. Okay, jump back up to verse 18. We're almost done here. Then after three years, Paul says, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him only 15 days. So Paul says, He hadn't gone up, but after three years he went up and he says, I was only there for two weeks. Verse 19, I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. That's fascinating. Verse 20, now concerning the things that I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. I'm not making this up. This is my true story. speaking autobiographically here. Verse 21, afterward I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Those are areas of modern Turkey. And I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, which of course, you know, today we take facial recognition for granted. I know what I look like. In the ancient world, before mirrors were sort of perfected, a lot of people didn't even know what they themselves looked like you have a very good sense of what you look like. My wife has one of these mirrors that like blows up her face that women get and you can like see yourself in full, like I I don't think you want to see anybody that close. That's why we close our eyes when we kiss, by the way, if you're ever wondering. Because nobody looks good that close. Nobody. Right? You get that close and it's just, it's safer to close your eyes. Okay? So, so we take for granted that, that, I know what I look like and I know what other people look like who are from, you know, I can look up somebody's Facebook page or their Instagram page. Paul was traveling from town to town, place to place, and he was going in, sitting in synagogues, meeting with Christian believers, and nobody knew who he was, and he didn't announce it. He was learning. He was literally for more than a decade, 14 years, learning, studying. Now, we don't know of those 14 years how long Paul remained in Arabia. We don't know. We can only surmise But he says he went to Arabia for a time. After three years, he went back to Jerusalem. After that, we don't know. He says he went into Cilicia, he went to Syria. Hard for me to imagine what I know about Paul, that he remained in those places. I think it's likely he went back to Tarsus. In fact, we know that he went back to Tarsus at some point because when Barnabas goes and finds him, he finds him in Tarsus. He was a tent maker. It's entirely possible that like Peter, what did Peter do after Jesus was crucified? What did he just instinctively, reflexively decide he was going to do? He's gonna go fishing. Just just like, go do what you know, figure it out. I think Paul did something like that. He went back to Tarsus and he was working in the family business and he just was trying to figure out what was going on. And sure enough, after some time, a guy named Barnabas is gonna show up, this is in Acts chapter 11, and he's gonna say, there's something you gotta see. And Paul's gonna say, what is it? And he says, come with me. And he takes him down to a place called Antioch, which is about 50 miles north of Jerusalem. And when he walks in, he sees, are you ready for this? A Gentile Christian congregation. And this is where it says in Acts chapter 11. They were called Christians in Antioch. Well, why were they called Christians? Because you couldn't call them Jews. Because you couldn't call them Jews. And when, when Saul saw that, when Saul of Tarsus, Paul saw that group of people, God said, I told you so. It's been a long, circuitous journey. Right? God does this. He did it with Moses, took him on a long journey to get to the you know, final destination. Right, And when he finally got there and saw Paul, Saul of Tarsus, Paul the Apostle, Saul, that group of Gentile believers in the Jewish Messiah, he immediately knew what his life work was. And that's Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 12 is the death of Herod. And 13 to 28 of Acts is all Paul. It's all Paul. Okay, so let's just finish this up. Um... Verse 21, After these things I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea who were in Christ. They were hearing only, He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith that he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. You almost, and that's the last verse there. You almost get the sense that sometimes Paul would go into churches where people would be talking about him, not knowing that he was there. Right? Like, hey, did you ever hear the story of that Saul of Tarsus? And did you hear that? Yeah, yeah, I heard about that guy. Well, some say he's an imposter and he's just trying to further penetrate the early Christian church so that he can know all of our meeting places and our halls and our leaders so that he can further persecute. But others are saying, no, I don't think so. I think he's for real. I think he's legitimate. And Paul says, I was, you get the sense, I was sometimes listening into conversations where people were talking about me because they didn't know what I looked like. They didn't know who I was. And that's the end of Acts chapter 1 so let's just summarize or not Acts chapter 1 Galatians chapter 1 let's just briefly summarize number one I'll ask you a series of questions and if you get the wrong answer I'm going to preach this all again <laughs> number one what does the word apostle mean? Yes. sent very good number two where is Paul's apostleship from? Yes. It's from God very good number three what is God's posture toward you and toward the people that Paul was writing to? grace grace and? peace, peace. very good Um, number four I think we're on four what is Paul very concerned about the twisting of or the reversal of the gospel gospel. is this um, an actual modification or is it a complete reversal it is a complete reversal what's on trial here we've not gotten fully into it but at some level what's on trial here and why is Paul speaking so autobiographically not just his character so much as his, his, his message and his apostleship, the legitimacy of his ministry. Okay, So Paul then describes that he did not get his teaching from who? People. From people. He got his teaching from God. Jesus himself. So far, so good? And after he got that teaching from Jesus himself, where did he go? Arabia. He went to Arabia. Why did he likely go there? Going back to the roots of his Jewish faith. Now, he did go to what city after three years? He went to, he says, Jerusalem. He went to Jerusalem and he met with who when he went there? Peter, Peter and also James. 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 Which James? Brother. The Lord's brother. Okay, very good. So that catches us up to Acts chapter 1, or Galatians chapter 1. I keep saying Acts. Galatians chapter 1. Here's the big pastoral takeaway, I think. Paul announces himself as first and foremost, as, as undeniably and, and irreversibly committed to pleasing God. I am here to please God. Whatever has been said about my reputation, whatever has been said about my n- n- legitimacy... Whatever others say about me, I stand before God. My reputation is His business. My apostleship is His business. My ministry is His business. Years ago, I read a great quotation from a lady named Jan Kahn. She was a rock climber in the Black Hills of South Dakota where I'm from. And she said, what other people think of me is none of my business, right? What we care about is what what does God think of us? The, what was the word I invented, do you remember? audience don't you like that I'll do that occasionally by the way make up some words okay so beloved I want to strongly encourage you to remember God's posture toward you is a posture of grace and peace today that's number one and number two orient yourself toward the pleasure of God and never mind what the bystanders say it doesn't mean you want to be obnoxious or present yourself in as a jerk but if you are presenting yourself primarily to God And you care about what he thinks let God take care of all this other stuff aka your reputation so far so good okay great takeaways if you want to be ready prepared for next week um, read through Galatians chapter 2 because we're going to do the same thing that we did this week we're just gonna walk through the passage and I'm only going to say this (laughs) we've been digging very light here we're we're like six inches deep when we get next week to Galatians chapter 2 verse 15 we're gonna pull out the backhoe Okay, We're going to pull out the oil driller, and we're going to be hundreds of meters deep in incredible theology, but we've got to do a little light digging before we get very deep, and you're going to love it. Okay, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we r- believe and receive that your posture toward us, your orientation toward us, is an orientation of grace and peace. Father, help us to live in the light of that reality, and if other people love it, great, and if other people don't love it, that's, that's okay too, Father we want to live to you and for you and we want to be in a community of people that are living to you and for you father today we receive the great truth of the gospel not one among many but the gospel that you have given yourself for us in Christ and that your orientation toward us is grace and peace and you want to deliver us to set us free from this present evil age bless us on that journey we pray Let everyone say, Amen.